Volume One, Book One of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Greenman. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Volume One, Contents. Translator's Preface. A Peculiarity of Joan of Arc's History. The Sieur Louis de Conte. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, Volume One, by Mark Twain. Consider this unique and imposing distinction. Since the writing of human history began, Joan of Arc is the only person of either sex who has ever held supreme command of the military forces of a nation at the age of seventeen. Louis Kossuth. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Sieur Louis de Conte her page and secretary in two volumes volume one freely translated out of the ancient french into modern english from the original unpublished manuscript in the national archives of france by jean francois alden authorities examined in verification of the truthfulness of this narrative j e j quichra condamnation et rehabilitation de jean d'arc j fabre procès de condamnation de jean d'arc H. A. Wallon, Jean d'Arc, M. Sepet, Jean d'Arc, J. Michelet, Jean d'Arc, Berriat de Saint-Prix, la famille de Jean d'Arc, la comtesse A. de Cabane, la Vierge Lorraine, Monseigneur Ricard, Jean d'Arc la Vénérable, Lord Ronald Gower, F. S. A., Joan of Arc, John O'Hagan, Joan of Arc, Janet Tukey, Joan of Arc the Maid. Translator's Preface To arrive at a just estimate of a renowned man's character, one must judge it by the standards of his time, not ours. Judged by the standards of one century, the noblest characters of an earlier one lose much of their luster. Judged by the standards of today, there is probably no illustrious man of four or five centuries ago whose character could meet the test at all points but the character of Joan of Arc is unique. It can be measured by the standards of all times without misgiving or apprehension as to the result. Judged by any of them, it is still flawless, it is still ideally perfect, it still occupies the loftiest place possible to human attainment, a loftier one than has been reached by any other mere mortal. When we reflect that her century was the brutalest, the wickedest, the rottenest in history since the darkest ages, we are lost in wonder at the miracle of such a product from such a soil. The contrast between her and her century is the contrast between day and night. She was truthful when lying was the common speech of men. She was honest when honesty was become a lost virtue. She was a keeper of promises when the keeping of a promise was expected of no one. She gave her great mind to great thoughts and great purposes when other great minds wasted themselves upon pretty fancies or upon poor ambitions. She was modest and fine and delicate when to be loud and coarse might be said to be universal. She was full of pity when a merciless cruelty was the rule. She was steadfast when stability was unknown, and honorable in an age which had forgotten what honor was. She was a rock of convictions in a time when men believed in nothing and scoffed at all things. She was unfailingly true to an age that was false to the core. 
she maintained her personal dignity unimpaired in an age of fawnings and servilities. She was of a dauntless courage when hope and courage had perished in the hearts of her nation. She was spotlessly pure in mind and body when society in the highest places was foul in both. She was all these things in an age when crime was the common business of lords and princes, and when the highest personages in Christendom were able to astonish even that infamous era, and make it stand aghast at the spectacle of their atrocious lives, black with unimaginable treacheries, butcheries, and bestialities. She was perhaps the only entirely unselfish person whose name has a place in profane history. No vestige or suggestion of self-seeking can be found in any word or deed of hers. When she had rescued her king from his vagabondage, and set his crown upon his head, she was offered rewards and honors, but she refused them all, and would take nothing. All she would take for herself, if the king would grant it, was leave to go back to her village home, and tend her sheep again, and feel her mother's arms about her, and be her housemaid and helper. The selfishness of this unspoiled general of victorious armies, companion of princes, and idol of an applauding and grateful nation, reached but that far, and no further. The work wrought by Joan of Arc may fairly be regarded as ranking any recorded in history, when one considers the conditions under which it was undertaken, the obstacles in the way, and the means at her disposal. Caesar carried conquests far, but he did it with the trained and confident veterans of Rome, and was a trained soldier himself, and Napoleon swept away the disciplined armies of Europe, but he also was a trained soldier and he began his work with patriot battalions inflamed and inspired by the miracle-working new breath of liberty breathed upon them by the revolution, eager young apprentices to the splendid trade of war, not old and broken men-at-arms, despairing survivors of an age-long accumulation of monotonous defeats. But Joan of Arc, a mere child in years, ignorant, unlettered, a poor village girl unknown and without influence, found a great nation lying in chains, helpless and hopeless under an alien domination, its treasury bankrupt, its soldiers disheartened and dispersed, all spirit torpid, all courage dead in the hearts of the people through long years of foreign and domestic outrage and oppression, their king cowed, resigned to its fate, and preparing to fly the country. And she laid her hand upon this nation, this corpse, and it rose and followed her. She led it from victory to victory. She turned back the tide of the Hundred Years' War. She fatally crippled the English power, and died with the earned title of Deliverer of France, which she bears to this day. And for all reward the French king whom she had crowned stood supine and indifferent, while French priests took the noble child, the most innocent, the most lovely, the most adorable the ages have produced, and burned her alive at the stake. A Peculiarity of Joan of Arc's History The details of the life of Joan of Arc form a biography which is unique among the world's biographies in one respect. It is the only story of a human life which comes to us under oath, the only one which comes to us from the witness-stand. The official records of the great trial of 1431 and of the process of rehabilitation of a quarter of a century later, are still preserved in the National Archives of France, and they furnish with remarkable fullness the facts of her life. 
the history of no other life of that remote time is known with either the certainty or the comprehensiveness that attaches to hers the sieur louis de conte is faithful to her official history in his personal recollections and thus far his trustworthiness is unimpeachable but his mass of added particulars must depend for credit upon his word alone the translator the sieur louis de conte to his great-great-grand-nephews and nieces this is the year fourteen ninety-two i am eighty-two years of age the things i am going to tell you are things which i saw myself as a child and as a youth in all the tales and songs and histories of joan of arc which you and the rest of the world read and sing and study in the books wrought in the late invented art of printing mention is made of me the sieur louis de conte i was her page and secretary i was with her from the beginning until the end i was reared in the same village with her i played with her every day when we were little children together just as you play with your mates now that we perceive how great she was now that her name fills the whole world it seems strange that what i am saying is true for it is as if a perishable paltry candle should speak of the eternal sun riding in the heavens and say he was gossip and housemate to me when we were candles together and yet it is true just as i say i was her playmate and i fought at her side in the wars to this day i carry in my mind fine and clear the picture of that dear little figure with breast bent to the flying horse's neck charging at the head of the armies of france her hair streaming back her silver mail ploughing steadily deeper and deeper into the thick of the battle sometimes nearly drowned from sight by tossing heads of horses uplifted sword-arms wind-blown plumes and intercepting shields i was with her to the end and when that black day came whose accusing shadow will lie always upon the memory of the mitred french slaves of england who were her assassins and upon france who stood idle and essayed no rescue my hand was the last she touched in life as the years and the decades drifted by and the spectacle of the marvellous child's meteor flight across the war firmament of france and its extinction in the smoke clouds of the stake receded deeper and deeper into the past and grew ever more strange and wonderful and divine and pathetic i came to comprehend and recognize her at last for what she was the most noble life that was ever born into this world save only one end of preface